Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Department of Justice okays one of former President Trump's nominees for special master to review the documents taken from Mar-a-Lago. The United Nations begins to target what it considers to be misinformation and conspiracy theories. The educational arm of the agency just published a report on the topic. Working to solve a teacher shortage, Florida and other regions across the country are trying new ways to find people who can teach U.S. schoolchildren. Ukrainian villagers rejoice as Russian troops retreat from the Kharkiv region. Some say the tide is changing, but an expert tells us the invasion isn't over by any means. The U.S. annual inflation rate came in at 8.3 percent in August. That's higher than the market forecast, but it's slightly down from the 8.5 percent reading in July. The core inflation rate, which doesn't include the food and energy sectors, rose to 6.3 percent last month. This was also higher than market expectations. Food and shelter costs contributed to the inflation numbers. They increased 11.4 percent and 6.2 percent, respectively. Investors are worried that the Federal Reserve will continue raising interest rates and might be more aggressive in its monetary tightening efforts. And the Department of Justice has agreed to one of Trump's picks for a special master. The third party would review documents the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The DOJ said in a filing Monday night it was willing to accept Trump pick Raymond Deary for special master. Deary was appointed by Reagan and was a federal judge. He's now a senior circuit court judge. He's been a well-respected judge for decades, and he's served on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. It's unclear whether the judge in the case will name Deary or someone else's special master. Trump's team Monday said it opposed both of the DOJ's picks. The same day in a filing, Trump's lawyers dismissed the former president's retention of documents at Mar-a-Lago as a storage dispute. Trump's team urged the judge to keep in place a directive that temporarily halted key aspects of the Justice Department's criminal probe. Trump's lawyers referred to the documents that were seized as purported classified records, saying the Justice Department had not proven that the materials taken by the FBI during its August 8 search were classified or remain so now. The Justice Department has requested continued access to the documents in the case. It's unknown when the judge will make her decision. Meanwhile, the DOJ has reportedly issued about 40 subpoenas over the past week, seeking information about efforts by former President Trump and his allies to dispute the 2020 election. The New York Times reported the news Monday. Among the people reportedly subpoenaed are Trump's one-time political director, deputy chief of staff, and campaign manager. And the subpoenas go beyond the January 6th Capitol breach. They also seek information about Trump's campaign fundraising and alternate electors. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Now we turn to education on the international scale. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, is targeting what they consider to be misinformation and conspiracy theories. Here are the details. UNESCO released a major report on misinformation and conspiracy theories for educators this summer titled Addressing Conspiracy Theories, What Teachers Need to Know. The UN agency said in the report that conspiracy theories cause significant harm and form the backbone of many populist movements. The report goes on to say conspiracy theories foster and reinforce harmful thinking patterns and exclusive worldviews and reduce trust in public institutions and scientific institutions. 
UNESCO officials argue that conspiracy theories can drive people to violence or decrease their desire to reduce their carbon footprint. In some cases, teachers are encouraged to report their students to authorities. Examples of conspiracy theories cited in the report include climate change denial, manipulation of federal elections in the U.S., to notions such as the Earth is flat or Michelle Obama is actually a lizard. Patrick Wood, the director of Citizens for Free Speech, criticized the report. He told the Epic Times, quote, There are plenty of crazy thoughts on the Internet, many of which are patently false. The only thoughts being corrected are those contrary to the globalist narrative. This proves that the focus is on protecting their own narratives and nothing else. Anyone who does not parrot the globalist narrative is by default considered to be a conspiracy theorist. In June, UNESCO held a summit on addressing conspiracy theories through education. The agency unveiled strategies to prevent people from believing in conspiracy theories and tools for dealing with those who already believe them. New York University professor of media studies Mark Crispin Miller has a warning. He told the Epic Times, quote, I can't think of anything more dangerous to free speech and free thought, and therefore democracy, than this effort by the UN, which has no business telling us what's true and what is not. Zooming in on education in the U.S., school districts across the country are complaining about a teacher shortage. Some regions are taking special measures to fill those empty spots. Florida is inviting military veterans to lead classrooms while they work on earning education credentials. According to the National Education Association, the Sunshine State has nearly 200,000 public school instructional staff. The state said over 280 veterans applied to the Military Veteran Certification Pathway as of late August. Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law the bill approving the program on June 9th. That's after it passed through both houses of the Florida legislature without any opposing votes. The measure has since generated both support and criticism. A teacher at an elementary school in Miami said he had one sibling in the U.S. Army and another in the Air Force, but that he wouldn't trust them with his children as teachers. It's just not fair for someone to come into a classroom unqualified, unprepared to teach um, and shape young minds. U.S. Army Reserve Brigadier General Vincent Bugs said he was confident veterans could immediately become valuable in the classroom. Absolutely. There's teachers that come right out of uh, college and make an immediate impact in the classroom. It's an, individu- it's an individual challenge. In other regions across the country, districts had virtual teachers join classrooms remotely from several states away and offered bonuses to lure back retirees as school resumed this year. But as some school districts sound the alarm over the shortage, others say there is little evidence to suggest teacher turnover has increased nationwide or educators are leaving in droves. Some argue that schools who received a lot of federal pandemic relief money create new positions and struggle to fill them at a time of low unemployment and stiff competition for workers of all kinds. More news on schools. The Pennsylvania Department of Education is promoting gender identity theory on its official website. But not everyone's on board. Some education administrators and state legislators believe gender education is the responsibility of families, not the schools. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. 21 members of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives are calling on the state's education secretary to resign unless he takes immediate action to reverse the Department of Education's new content requirements and guidelines. 
Pennsylvania State Representative Barbara Glime says many parents are outraged. Some say what the schools are teaching their children goes against their religious beliefs. Once the school starts teaching that those worldviews in their homes is wrong, that's where they've crossed the line. Gleam says a group of parents filed a lawsuit in federal court last month. And they're basically saying that the Constitution protects the sanctity of the family, okay? It protects that family institution um, uh, from interference from the state. And they're saying that this is interfering. Pennsylvania Department of Education's gender identity webpage includes a curriculum guide for teachers to hold a gender-neutral day for grades 3 to 12. The guide states that students should reject gender stereotypes for the day and teachers should challenge gender norms in the classroom. For two and a half years, the government has been telling us to follow the science, trust the science. But this is basic biology. There is a male and a female. Teachers are instructed not to assume someone's gender identity. And it actually attacks free speech as well because students who may not have those same values are forced to use specific pronouns that don't match up with what they see with their own eyes. Right now, there are no lesson plans being presented to parents or administration. Gleam has introduced a bill to increase transparency. Uh, the data is that more people are pulling their children out of public schools because they don't think that the school is focused on their child's education. According to a recent poll by Education Next, nearly 2 million students in the U.S. are no longer attending public schools and are choosing alternative methods. We need to get back to academics only and leave the values and the uh, morals to the families. The poll indicated that between 2020 and 2022, the number of students in public schools dropped by 4%. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A spokeswoman for Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf reportedly said that calls for the Secretary of Education's resignation are a distraction. She said the information at issue has been on the Department of Education's website for years without concern. And staying in Pennsylvania, all eyes are on the Keystone State as the midterms approach. The two U.S. Senate candidates were busy campaigning over the weekend for a race that could determine which party controls the Senate. Democratic U.S. Senate candidate John Fetterman held a rally in suburban Philadelphia. He sought to allay concerns about his health after suffering a stroke in May that he said almost killed him. Who has someone, maybe personally, yourself, has ever had a big, major health challenge. Okay, all right. How about any of your parents? Grandparents? Maybe even your kids? Yeah. You know, I'm so sorry. I mean, I certainly have. Fetterman, who is the state's lieutenant governor, has largely kept off the campaign trail since the stroke. His Republican opponent is Dr. Mehmet Oz. One of the key issues dividing the two is abortion access. Codify Roe. Right now, we have the numbers to do it, but we're not. Send me to D.C. to make sure you know I will be there to be that vote. Thank you on that. And something unusual happened at Oz's rally in Bucks County. According to his campaign and reporters on the scene, a woman appeared to have collapsed. 
Oz, a retired cardiothoracic surgeon, jumped over a rail and rushed into a crowd to help. His campaign said Oz tended to the woman until paramedics arrived. And during the rally, Oz renewed his calls for Fetterman to schedule a debate. Fetterman said during the Sunday rally that he agreed to a debate in October. This race in Pennsylvania could help determine whether the Democrats hold on to their razor-thin margin in the Senate. Both President Biden and former President Trump have traveled to the state in recent weeks to promote their party's candidates. And coming up, Amtrak begins canceling trains on some routes as it prepares for a potential strike. The country is facing one of the first national railroad strikes in 30 years. Find out more in just a minute. Amtrak is preemptively pausing train schedules on some of its long-range routes due to a looming freight rail strike. Amtrak says it's closely monitoring the ongoing negotiations. Its own workforce isn't involved, but Amtrak doesn't own the track itself, so thousands of miles of travel could be impacted. The suspended routes are mostly out of Chicago, but also include trains from Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco. The labor dispute could lead to the first national railroad strike in 30 years. About 60,000 union members, including engineers and conductors, are set to go on strike this Friday. It would bring the freight rail system, which carries nearly 30% of the nation's freight, to a grinding halt. That could mean more empty shelves, temporary factory closures, and higher prices on consumer goods. Congress does have some power to prevent the strike. Two senators proposed a resolution yesterday that would require unions and railroads to accept a temporary solution if they can't resolve the conflict on their own. From transportation to the health industry, one of the largest private sector nursing strikes in U.S. history. About 15,000 nurses in Minnesota walked off the job Monday. A three-day strike is affecting 13 hospitals around the Minneapolis metro area and Duluth. The nurses' union says the strike isn't about wages, but resolving problems with staffing shortages, retention, and better patient care, although they have also been negotiating to get a 30% pay raise and other benefits. However, hospital managers say they cannot afford to meet the nurses' demands. The affected hospitals said they recruited temporary nurses and expect to maintain most services. Hospital executives say there are no talks scheduled for the two sides during the next three days. And a tragedy in Colorado, a police officer was killed in the line of duty in Arvada, a city northwest of Denver. He was 27. A suspect has been taken into custody. Arvada police say Officer Dylan Vakoff responded to a large family disturbance early Sunday. He and another officer were trying to separate several combative people when the suspect shot a woman. The officers fired at the suspect, who then shot and killed Vakoff. The suspect and the female victim are in the hospital and are expected to survive. In other news, the U.S. Coast Guard has released video of intercepting a small boat carrying five migrants off the coast of Florida. The Coast Guard intercepted the boats about 18 miles south of Key West on Friday. The Coast Guard says the people in the video were sent back to Cuba two days later. Over the weekend, Florida authorities arrested nearly 80 illegal immigrants from Cuba. They landed in the Keys in five separate vessels. One Coast Guard officer said via NBC Miami that the trip from Cuba is, quote, filled with uncertainty and great risk to loss of life. She says Cubans should use a safe and legal means of coming to the U.S. instead of leaving their families to wonder about their fate. 
Coast Guard officials say they have stopped nearly 5,500 Cubans this year. That's the most in a year so far since 2016. Over to California in the aftermath of Tropical Storm K, officials closed down roads as they warned of flash floods and severe mudslides damage homes. Eyewitnesses video obtained by Reuters shows large mudslide in Oak Glen. In the footage, a man narrowly escapes a second mudslide right as it happens. The San Diego National Weather Service issued a flash flood warning covering several areas. County authorities tweeted around 8 p.m. that the mud affected gas and power lines and that officials were checking street by street for possible rescues. Just after 9 p.m., authorities issued evacuation orders for Oak Glen. A second evacuation order came at 10 p.m. for another affected area. The U.S. Navy says its videos of UFOs are classified and will not be disclosed to the public. They say releasing them would harm national security. This is in response to requests from a website called The Black Vault. The website keeps an archive of declassified government documents obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests. It mainly focuses on materials related to UFOs and similar phenomena. The website's creator says he's been trying to obtain the Navy's videos since April 2020. He says he's appealing for all of the videos that are classified as unidentified aerial phenomenon to be released. The Navy told the website that the videos could provide adversaries with valuable information regarding the Department of Defense and the Navy. And NASA is celebrating the 60th anniversary of a historic speech given by President John F. Kennedy. The speech in 1962 rallied the nation to land astronauts on the moon. The speech at Rice University, although it followed a message that he had sent to Congress, in so many ways captured the moment uh, in a very specific way. His direction about uh, sending a man to the moon, Uh, And he talked about doing other things as well, returning him safely. Kennedy gave the speech at Rice University in Houston, Texas on September 12, 1962, in front of thousands of people. The school on Monday also celebrated the 60th anniversary of the speech. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson was the keynote speaker. The program also featured Johnson Space Center Director Vanessa Weish, as well as other agency officials, dignitaries, and local and national elected officials. NASA is currently gearing up for a test flight of its moon rocket Artemis One after two unsuccessful launch attempts. Through Artemis missions, NASA hopes to eventually return a person to the moon and explore Mars. NASA is pushing back the next launch attempt for its Artemis One moon rocket. The agency announced Monday that the launch will now take place on September 27th, four days later than originally slated. The September 27th launch window is 70 minutes long, shorter than the 120-minute window available on September 23rd. October 2nd is a potential backup date. The first two Artemis One launch attempts were scrubbed for technical problems. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, calls for an investigation into U.S. taxpayer money being used to buy Chinese solar panels that may have been made using forced labor. We bring you analysis from a Uyghur politician. And Chinese microchips being built into the iPhone 14. One lawmaker says the Silicon Valley tech giant is playing with fire. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News.
Welcome back. Concerns on Capitol Hill of taxpayer money being used illegally to purchase Chinese-made solar panels. The heart of the issue involves the U.S. Virgin Islands allegedly using disaster relief money to buy panels from China. Our next guest describes how it's possible these panels could be made in an inhumane way in China's Xinjiang region, also known as East Turkestan by some Uyghurs. Please welcome Salih Hudayar, the Prime Minister of East Turkestan's government in exile. Pleasure speaking with you today, Salih. Thank you, Brian. House Republicans are demanding an investigation over DHS money being used to buy Chinese solar panels made with forced labor. A lot of polysilicon is produced in your homeland. In your view, how likely is it that Uyghur slave labor is producing these panels? It's very likely, given the fact that prior to China starting its official campaign of genocide and forced labor of Uyghurs, in 2014, uh, solar power, uh, polysilicon production in East Turkestan amounted for only 9% of the global uh, production. By 2021, it uh, 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 proliferated to over 50% of global production. And the fact that this is happening around the same time that China is locking up millions of Uyghurs and other Turk peoples into concentration camps and forced labor camps shows us that, there, that this is only possible if the Chinese government was using uh, 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 slave labor of Uyghurs. So it's very highly likely. Uh, it's unacceptable that the U.S. government or any government uh, is, is buying uh, solar panels from China that are used uh, by the slave, uh, but that are made with the uh, forced or slave labor of Uyghurs. Definitely um, something to investigate. Now, Representative yeah. Bob Gibbs of Ohio wrote on Twitter, we need to make sure such projects like these solar projects do not enrich Chinese companies profiting off slave labor. What's your reaction to this? Uh, we fully support that. And what's most important is that many of these companies that are using, uh, that are manufacturing the solar panels are actually uh, XPC, linked to the XPCC, or the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. Paramilitary uh, and the Chinese uh, paramilitary force that is responsible for not only colonizing East Turkestan but also suppressing any dissent, and it's essentially the one that's implementing the ongoing genocide. Uh, it's a, 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 an entity that has been sanctioned by the U.S. government back in uh, June uh, or July of 2021. So it's completely unacceptable that. Uh, the U.S. government or any entity is doing uh, business with uh, an a sanctioned entity that is very deeply involved in the ongoing genocide. So if this forced labor is being used, it's sort of a recursive cycle in which the regime is now employing this forced labor and then profiting off of it in order to just continue its persecution? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Because uh, even to hold millions of Uyghurs in concentration camps, cost the Chinese government a lot of money, uh, you know, to uh, pay for the security forces, to pay for all the extra, uh, you know, surveillance uh, and other systems that they have in place. Now, the U.S. has designated the persecution of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities as genocide. What are these people facing both inside and outside of China's official borders? Inside the camps, the Chinese government is subjecting them to forced uh, uh, indoctrination, uh, eight up to 14 to 16 hours a day, you know, praising the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they're stripped of their identity, their religion, 
their culture. Uh, people are being forcibly sterilized. Uh, there are also credible reports that they are being, uh, you know, facing sexual abuse and, and rape. Uh, there are also other credible reports uh, that they are also being have, having their organs harvested, much like the fallen god. Salih Hudayar, Prime Minister of East Turkestan's government in exile, pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. The new iPhone 14 may come equipped with microchips from China. U.S. lawmakers are highly alarmed and warn about the consequences. And today's Tiffany Meyer has more with China in Focus. Apple is debuting the next generation of iPhone, and the device will come equipped with microchips from China. That's according to a South Korean media report. It says iPhone 14's chips may come from Yangtze Memory Technologies or YMTC. The company has links to the Chinese Communist Party. Senator Marco Rubio took aim at Apple over the news, saying the company is playing with fire. He warned that if Apple moves forward, it will be subject to scrutiny like it has never seen from the federal government adding we cannot allow Chinese companies beholden to the Communist Party and to our telecommunications networks and millions of Americans' iPhones. Congressman Michael McCall says YMTC's ties with the Chinese Communist Party and its military are extensive. He fears that Apple will transfer technology know-how to YMTC and help the Chinese regime achieve its national goals. Both Democrats and Republicans regard YMTC as a national security risk and have accused the company of violating a U.S. tech export ban. That's because it sells chips to a sanctioned Chinese company, telecom giant Huawei. A bipartisan group urged the Commerce Department to add the company to a trade blacklist this July, but the effort failed. Carmaker VinFast has made the first deliveries of their all-electric sport utility vehicles to customers in Vietnam. Now the automaker is setting its sights on the U.S. market where it hopes to compete with legacy automakers and startups. With simulated smoke and bright flashing lights, Vietnamese carmaker VinFast presented its all-electric sport utility vehicles. The crowd gathered for the event applauded the first batch of the electric SUVs made for local customers. But VinFast is setting its sights on the international market, with U.S. deliveries of the EVs due to begin as soon as December. These first vehicles will be delivered to our Vietnamese customers. After that, the next batch of 5,000 vehicles will be produced for the U.S. and North American market. We will start producing that batch next week. Then we will start producing for the EU market. VinFast, which began operations in 2019, is hoping its VF8 and VF9 models can compete with legacy automakers and startups in the U.S. The company has registered 65,000 reservations globally and says it expects to sell 750,000 EVs per year by 2026. And in March, VinFast announced plans to build a production facility in North Carolina with an initial projected capacity of 150,000 EVs a year. For U.S. customers, the VF8 will start at just over $42,000 and the VF9 will begin at $57,500, excluding the cost to lease the electric battery. The company said options that include batteries will also be available. 
Still to come, no more ads for meat products and fossil fuels in a Dutch city by 2024. The city says they are banning those products over environmental concerns. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. American and Canadian forces detected two Russian patrol planes flying within the Alaskan and Canadian air defense identification zones. The aircraft were detected by the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, on September 11th. The officials said the two aircrafts stayed in international airspace and didn't enter American or Canadian airspace. NORAD said in a statement that the activity is not seen as threatening or provocative. The Russian aircraft flew within the same region that NORAD started an air defense operation a day later. That operation involves aircraft from the U.S. and Canada flying at high altitudes over Arctic and Pacific areas. The operation ends Wednesday. NORAD is a binational command charged with the defense of the United States and Canada. It's been operating since 1958. Next, an update on the war in Ukraine. Villages in the Kharkiv region are reportedly rejoicing after Russian forces fled and Ukrainian soldiers occupied the area. We get some strategic analysis on this from a former U.S. military officer. He breaks down the retreat, Moscow's rhetoric surrounding it, and relations between Russia and China. Joining us now is retired U.S. Marine Colonel Grant Newsham. He's also a senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy. Great to see you again, Grant. I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much. Some are saying the tide is turning in Ukraine as Russian forces retreat and as Ukraine puts pressure on the invaders and takes back more territory. What's your take on this? Well, certainly better than it was in February. Uh, This has turned in Ukraine's favor. Uh, They've gotten some good advice from somewhere. They've gotten some good hardware, and they've put it to use in a a very effective way. And as I say, it's nice to see things actually um, working out well for the Ukrainians. Uh, This isn't over by any means, uh, but nonetheless, it's got the Russians on the back foot. And Russian and Chinese officials are set to meet later this week. Could Russia and China be forming an alliance? And if so, what does this mean? Well, they've already got an alliance of sorts, but it just depends on how you define alliance. There's a real cooperation between these two, uh, and that is the thing to always keep in mind, that while they may not have signed an agreement, uh, that this is definitely a meeting of the minds between two countries which have uh, nothing good in store for democracies and freedom. Uh, The Chinese are, of course, uh, sort of watching to see what happens to the Russians. Uh, and they are, have been quietly providing financial, economic, and even some military support. And the political support that they've provided, uh, particularly at the United Nations, uh, that has been of immense help to the Russians. Uh, so do keep in mind this may be a marriage of convenience, but sometimes that'll be enough to uh, cause the civilized world a lot of trouble. You mentioned political support. Can you elaborate on this? Well, any effort to actually condemn the Russians uh, for what they have done against Ukraine, the the human rights atrocities. Uh, The Chinese have made sure that those go nowhere. And they have also leaned on other countries around the world to uh, keep quiet as well. Uh, When the attack started uh, uh, on the Ukraine, the the Chinese actually uh, issued orders to their propaganda ministry Uh, and the outlets to not say anything bad about Russia, because when the time comes with Taiwan, uh, we'll want the Russian support. 
So this, this willingness to keep mouths closed and to call the Russians out for what they've done, uh, that is, uh, it's immensely valuable to the Russians and the Chinese have provided that support. Speaking of mass communications, how have the Russians treated the public view of their retreat? Oh, well, there's, you can only hide it so far and call it certain things. I think they've called it regrouping. Uh, but the Russian citizenry knows, and the Russian elite class knows as well what has happened. Uh, they have really embarrassed themselves, and there is no way to, to hide this. So this is a very interesting turn of events. Uh, as I said, it's not the end of anything, uh, but it is uh, something that we'll have to watch very closely. And it is ultimately it's because the Ukrainians have fought like tigers uh, to protect themselves. And... The hardware, the advice are all important, but at the end of the day, it's the Ukrainians have stood up and fought and died. Uh, and now they're um, getting some uh, payback. And Grant, just briefly here, in light of the recent retreat, how would Russian defeat in Ukraine affect Beijing's military ambitions toward Taiwan? Uh, unfortunately, what the Chinese will do is they will look at what the, they think the Russians did wrong, and they'll try to do it better or do it differently. And they have been watching this assault from the very beginning and calculating how it would actually work with Taiwan and what, what uh, didn't work out well for the Russians. That's been pretty obvious. And the Chinese, who have such a superiority complex over the Russians, figure, well, the Russians made mistakes, but we'll do it better when we go after Taiwan. Very interesting perspective. Retired U.S. Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, pleasure speaking with you today. Well, thanks very much. Glad to be here. In the Netherlands, a city is moving to ban ads for meat, fossil fuels, and gas cars in public spaces. They say this is due to environmental concerns. Here are the details. The Dutch city of Harlem, just outside Amsterdam, has moved to outlaw some advertisements for meat in public areas. It would also ban ads for fossil fuels, fossil fuel-powered cars, and vacation flights at those same public spaces, which include bus stations and advertising columns. The law would take effect in 2024 to honor existing contracts with advertisers. A Harlem city councilor who represents the Green Left Party came up with the resolution. Harlem's proposed ban comes as many environmentalists redouble their efforts to limit or even eliminate animal agriculture, particularly in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is a significant center of animal agriculture, but that may soon change. In June, the Dutch government proposed massive area-specific cuts to nitrogen emissions. The emission standards are strict enough to shutter about a third of the nation's farms by 2030. One Dutch trucker who protested the emission standards told the Epic Times that he thinks Harlem's new rule is part of that bigger picture. Wybren van Haga, a member of the Dutch parliament and leader of a political party, described the ban as an attack on free enterprise and bad for the economy. Dutch media also reported that the country's central organization representing the meat industry expressed similar worries about the ban. Meanwhile, many environmental groups are celebrating. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization attributes over 14% of greenhouse gas to livestock, due in part to methane from gases they emit. Eurogroup for Animals reacts to the ban, saying, quote, This is a great step towards reduced meat consumption and the promotion of more sustainable food systems. Greenpeace UK wrote, quote, The meat and dairy industry is responsible for 19% of global greenhouse gas emissions, so this is good news for the climate. 
South Africa is struggling with recurring power cuts. State power utility ESCOM implemented cuts last week and will do so again this week. The government has plans to fix the problem, but results could be a year or more away. Here's more. In July, President Cyril Ramaphosa pledged new moves to tackle the crisis. But ESCOM Chief Operating Officer Jan Oberholzer said that though they have various plans in place, this is going to take time to implement. Speaking at a news briefing, Oberholzer also addressed the continuing deterioration of ESCOM's aging and unreliable fleet of coal-fired power stations. He said 42 generating units, or almost 24,000 megawatts of capacity, tripped last week, with some units breaking down more than once. Midway through its financial year, ESCOM has spent 7.7 billion rand, or 451 million US dollars, on diesel to run emergency generators. That's far in excess of the budgeted amount, Oberholzer said, calling it a serious concern. The Australian government says the image of King Charles III won't automatically replace Queen Elizabeth II on Australian $5 notes, and it could be replaced by Australian figures. Australian coins are mandated to carry the image of the British monarch. However, a Treasury official says the Queen's image was on the $5 note because of her personality, not her status as the monarch, and any changes would not be automatic. The Royal Australian Mint is the sole producer of coins in the country. It says it will issue no circulating coins bearing the likeness of Queen Elizabeth in 2023, but says some coins dated 2023 have already been released with the Queen's image. The Queen's death has reignited debates about Australia's future as a constitutional monarchy. Voters narrowly chose to maintain the British monarch as its head of state in a 1999 referendum. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, drone makers feature innovative drones at an event in London. Hydrogen is one of the most popular solutions to help the drones fly longer. And houseboats made of cardboard float in the Netherlands. The houseboats all feature a bathroom, separate bedroom, and wall-integrated folding beds. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. Drone makers are building lighter, more flexible drones capable of flying longer, and hydrogen is one of the most popular fuel solutions. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more from the DroneX event in London. The DroneX trade show is the UK's largest business-to-business event dedicated to drones. Companies across the world are in attendance. Israeli company Gadfin is showing off its latest medical delivery drone. One of the most innovative features of Gadfin's drone is its retractable wing system. Well, first of all, a uh, fixed-wing air vehicle was never designed to take off vertically. <laughs> it was never designed for that. Uh, it's something that uh, in the time we, we started doing, but it causes lots of problems. The Gadfin drone uses a hydrogen fuel cell, which gives it a working range of 155 miles. Hydrogen offers significantly longer flight times than batteries. It's also emissions-free. UK company ISS Aerospace is showing off its latest modular drone, the Census 8. This version on display is fitted with a hydrogen fuel cell and a large hydrogen cylinder. 
So this is our Census 8 aircraft. It's been designed for multiple sensors, data fusion, autonomy. Um, but with that comes the need for wide area operations. And typical battery lifetimes of maybe 30, 40 minutes are not sufficient for that. So hydrogen allows us to fly two to three times longer. The Air Barrow drone from German company Aero DCS also uses hydrogen power. It's designed as a workhorse and for mass production. There are only two moving parts in the entire body frame. You must see one kilogram of hydrogen has about 66 kilowatt hour energy content. And a battery LiPo, the best one, have 0.14. So you have 250 times more energy content per kilogram of hydrogen. And this is amazing. Another solution to increasing flight time is to reduce weight. That's what Danish company Nordic Wing has done with its Astero drone. It's lightweight enough to be hand-launched by one person. Our aim with the Astero drone was to build a uh, sufficiently robust drone that can be in the air for much longer than um, a similar drone of this class and uh, be robust enough to, to drop down and it, and it still is able to be used again and again. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Houseboats made of cardboard. They don't sink, and you can even stay in one overnight in the Netherlands. They could help Dutch cities expand on the water in the future. These small floating houses made of cardboard are called wickle boats. They're coated with waterproof and wooden layers. The segments are modular too, so the length of each house can be extended or reduced. If you have very limited space in the Netherlands and especially in Rotterdam as an expanding bustling city, then you also look to places where people can go on the water and things like that. And it's also the square meters are used in a very multifunctional way. The houseboats all feature a bathroom, separate bedroom and wall integrated folding beds. There's a video projector with a rollout screen and a hidden hot tub. You won't miss anything and only on 30 square meters or 45 square meters and you have everything you want. The jacuzzi, for example, if you opt for a vehicle boat with a jacuzzi, you don't see it in daytime. You just sit on the terrace on the jacuzzi because it's on under the, under the deck. Wickle boats could be part of a solution to develop Dutch cities on the water. The floating global center on adaptation building in Rotterdam is a prime example. It's the largest floating office in the world. With all the uh, uh, abandoned uh, uh, inner city arbors, uh, we want to connect the water with the areas behind. So we are now uh, 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 thinking about developing the city in connection with the water. Wickle boats are also used for professional events like meetings and team building workshops. Everything is inside. We have a refrigerator where we can have cold drinks, coffee, tea, etc., fruit on the table. For overnight stays, Wickleboat charges between $255 and $350 per night. The company is also planning new projects in Dutch and Belgian cities with old harbors. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, baseball fans no longer have to wait in long lines for snacks. At some stadiums, they can order food from their phones and pick it up near their seats. Stay tuned for more in just a moment. Japanese baseball fans don't need to worry about missing any of the action. They can now order food on their phones and pick it up near them in the stands. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. 
Fans at this baseball game no longer need to miss parts of the game when they get hungry. They can order food on an app instead of waiting in line. Here's what fans have to say. I think this is a great service because I can receive my order without standing in line, so I can concentrate on the game more. The service was launched last Tuesday. It's a collaboration between the Tohoku Rakuten Eagles and Japan's Uber Eats. Fans order using the Uber Eats app and receive a notification when their food is ready. They can then go grab their food from a pickup location near them in the stadium. I feel unlucky when I hear cheers when I'm stuck in line, so it's nice to be able to get back to my seat and eat quickly. Satoshi Ori is managing director of Uber Japan. He explains why the new service was launched. I learned that Uber America has started a service called mobile ordering at baseball stadiums. That is why we proposed this collaboration of services. We proposed this idea because we thought it would give spectators the best Uber Eats experience and the best way to experience watching a baseball game. Ori says the service allows fans to skip waiting in long lines at concession areas. I think there are two advantages to this service. The first advantage is that people don't have to wait in long lines to pick up their orders. The second advantage is that it reduces the risk of missing a decisive moment in a baseball game. We believe that these two points are the most interesting aspects of this service. According to Uber, similar services are available at several stadiums and arenas in the United States, including at the Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, Angel Stadium in Anaheim, Yankee Stadium in New York, Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C., Minute Maid Park in Houston, and PayPal Park in San Jose, California. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Now over to Switzerland, where a resort hosted an event in the Cliff Diving World Series. Here's how the divers fared in the sixth event of the 2022 season. In the women's event, Rhiannon Ifland of Australia continues to dominate. She claimed her fifth consecutive win of the season. And this was the 17th location at which she has competed and now won. Molly Carlson of Canada came second, and another Australian came in third. And the men's event, Aidan Heslop from Great Britain claimed a second victory and fourth podium finish this season. Nine-time overall champion Gary Hunt of France finished second, and American diver James Lichtenstein finished third in his second-ever World Series competition. The seventh and penultimate event of the season will take place in Italy on September 18th. Now we travel to Argentina, where over 500 tango dancers from all over the world are gathering. It's a major festival in Buenos Aires, the cultural home of the dance. The Buenos Aires Tango Festival and World Cup is considered the world's largest tango-related event. This was the first full festival since the COVID-19 pandemic. Last year, foreign contestants took part via Zoom. At qualifying events, female dancers dressed up in heels and shiny dresses, while the men combed their hair straight in the style of historic Argentine tango icons. A dancer from London says it's been a dream for her to participate and be surrounded by the atmosphere of the place. And a 74-year-old dancer from Japan says it's his first time attending and he just wants to have a good time and do his best. It's that sort of positive attitude to the competition that keeps him healthy. But the number of people troubled by negative emotions today is uncountable. Can we turn this around? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
let's talk about the happiness hormones. When we understand how they work, we maximize their positive effects on our health and moods. They have weird names, but magic properties. They are serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, and oxytocin. Serotonin is the calm, wake-up call chemical. It's the anti-stress agent that keeps your brain calm and regulates your mood. When low, you get irritability, depression, and anxiety. Dopamine is the reward chemical promoting positive mood-enhancing memory and concentration. Endorphins stimulate the runner's high. You are dead beat but relaxed and happy. Endorphins in action also act as natural painkillers. Oxytocin is the natural love drug. A woman's body secretes oxytocin during birth. Oxytocin helps people to feel closer to others, creating trust and empathy. Here's how to increase the happiness hormones. Wake up early. Go outside in the sun. Boost serotonin and dopamine, the natural antidepressants. Exercise. You get serotonin, endorphins, and dopamine to relieve stress and forget your worries. Maintain this habit if you want to keep stable moods. Sleep stabilizes dopamine and serotonin in your body. In the hour before bed, turn off your devices. Do good deeds. When you do good deeds for others, your brain releases dopamine, endorphins, and oxytocin. This helps you to feel inner peace and joy. Don't forget to listen to classical music. If you feel sad and anxious, Mozart or Beethoven, this type of calm and classical music is beneficial to mental and physical health. And let's not forget about meditation. Practicing spirituality releases endorphins. Meditation relieves pain and reduces inflammatory conditions. You might want to try Falun Gong, Tai Chi or yoga. And don't forget about going out in nature. Open your heart and lungs and clear your mind. Serotonin is acting. Add to that sunshine and you have a wonderful de-stressor. Don't forget to smile. The great thing about smiling is that it makes your heart happy. Dopamine and serotonin boost your emotions and minimize stress. A good belly laugh strengthens your immune system, so let yourself go. Did you enjoy a big breakfast today? A new study from the University of Aberdeen shows having a hearty breakfast can help curb hunger cravings throughout the day. However, researchers found big breakfasts don't help you lose weight. The study looked at 30 people who ate big breakfasts for four weeks and then big dinners for another four weeks. Researchers found no difference in weight loss between the two, but participants reported being less hungry through the day after having a hearty breakfast. That could be a big help if you are working on overall appetite control. But it's important to note, the researchers gave the participants all their meals, so the study doesn't account for how much they would have chosen to eat. You can find more details in the journal Cell Metabolism. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.